You're listening to episode 168 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. What's up, storytellers? We have author Rachel Hawkins on the show with us today. Now, whether you are a longtime listener or this is your first time tuning into 88 Cups of Tea, I am so happy to have you here. Before we dive right into Rachel's introduction, I've got some exciting news to share. Over the past several months, we've been publishing incredibly helpful and powerful featured articles and essays by some of your favorite authors touching on topics like improving your craft and the mindset behind storytelling. Our newest piece about mastering plot twists using suspense to hook readers in is written by the lovely author Sarah Faring. If you're looking to shake up your plot, this article is perfect for you. So head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash featured dash articles to read Sarah's piece along with all the other awesome articles we published. In other exciting news, I had the most mind-blowing conversation with Mindy McGinnis during our two-hour-long live stream event. It was the most transparent and honest conversation I've ever had with any author about the realities of finances for writers, how authors get paid, the publishing business, marketing books, short stories, traditional versus self-publishing, and so much more. This live stream event is exclusive to our Patreon family in the Silky Chickens with Balloons tier and the Snails with Mail tier. As a heads up, this live stream will not be converted into a podcast episode and will not be published on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or any platform outside of Patreon. This is a super special bonus conversation as a thank you to our Patreon family. We've had a bunch of listeners recently sign up just to watch the live stream playback, and they have been loving it. You can unlock access to the playback of our bonus conversation with Mindy McGinnis in the comfort of your own home right now by signing up at patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea. Plus, browse through our archive of extended interviews and get first dibs on hearing upcoming episodes weeks and weeks in advance, like my conversation with Madeline Miller, the brilliant author of Circe and The Song of Achilles. On top of all of that, hang out with me during the occasional book haul live streams and watch exclusive behind-the-scenes Patreon feed where you'll watch video updates directly from me in a very unfiltered way, which, by the way, works a lot like Instagram stories. Access to all of this starts at $8.88 per month at the Silky Chickens with Balloons tier or higher. FYI, you can cancel or adjust your pledge amount for any reason at any time. Thank you so much for considering how much impact your contribution can make. And thank you most sincerely for caring about 88 Cups of Tea being a part of your life and fellow storytellers' lives. To have a look around, head over to patreon.com slash 88 Cups of Tea. Now on to today's guest, Rachel Hawkins is the author of Rebel Bell, the New York Times bestselling series Hex Hall, Prince Charming, and its sequel, Her Royal Highness. 
In our conversation, Rachel shares how she fell in love with storytelling and her journey to becoming an author. We dive into her querying process and discuss key advice on coping with rejection. We also talk about finding the right agent for you and your story, how to maintain a great agent and author relationship, how to work with your editor to strengthen your plot, and the game-changing writing advice to help you achieve your writing goals. To listen to Rachel's full hour and a half extended episode, head over to patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea. To download the writing prompt that Rachel created just for our community, head over to her show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Rachel dash Hawkins. For all of you devoted Instagram users, it is your lucky day. Rachel is taking over our Instagram story, so be sure to look out for her at instagram.com slash 88 cups of tea to watch. Okay, now finally, let's jump right in. I'm really excited about this chat. So why don't we just kick off with how you first fell in love with storytelling? Yeah, so I always like to joke that I have been a writer since before I knew how to write because I was very into Barbies as a very small child and I played really intense. I don't, I don't know how you say like games of Barbie, like <laughs> very intense like Barbie scenarios. <laughs> So like multi-character, multi-storyline, many costume changes, the whole thing. It's such a weird thing because I I don't remember a time before I was doing that. Like from the time I was really, really little, I was always very, very into just like the entire concept of story, whether it was in the books that my mom read to me or playing Barbies, or I was home with my mom a lot during the day. She watched a lot of soap operas and I was, I was invested at like four (laughs) on like what was happening (laughs) on all my children as one does. So yeah, it's like such a part of my fundamental DNA sometimes I think. How do you think your family was with your storytelling identity? Were they very encouraging of it or were they more so let's focus on homework and studying just because I think that's a huge part in how it shapes us to grow up and right. and also setting us with whether firm belief of we can do this or no, this is going to be an extra hurdle, an extra push on my own end. I'm really, really lucky. I have really, really supportive parents. They both were very indulgent with like what a weird little kid I was. <laughs> <laughs> so I always tell the story about how when I was really little, like four or five, one of my favorite things to do was to tell my mom I was going to play in the backyard. And then I would change into some of my various costumes out there in the backyard and run around to the front door and ring the doorbell. And my mom would open the door and treat me like whoever I was pretending to be that day, usually a princess of some kind. And she'd invite me in and we would chat. And then I'd leave by the front door and go back out into the backyard, change back into my regular clothes, come in through the back door. And my mom would do this whole thing of like, Oh my God, like you missed it. Like princess so-and-so was here. And I'd be like, Oh man, I can't believe I wasn't here for that. Yeah. So like very, very indulgent of my, my need to make up all kinds of things. Um, And, and I think part of that, may come from having been an only child. You know, I think like, I mean, like I said, I'm raising an only child. You do sort of accept that like imaginative play is par for the course. So, um, but yeah, it's funny because like both my parents were very blue collar. I'm the first person um, in my family to graduate from college. And, and so they wanted me to work hard and like, they sent me to like a really good school there in my town and all of that good stuff. 
but they were just as supportive of the creative endeavors. My dad in particular was a big, big reader too. My mom's very crafty. So like it's, she doesn't like sitting and reading for long periods of time. She's one of those people that's like, I could be working in my yard, but she still really supported that. So did my dad. So yeah, I was so, so lucky in that. There was never any kind of, oh, this is a waste of time, or you should be buckling down and focusing on these serious things. There was none of that. Wow. Wow. Okay. That really does make a huge difference in upbringing. And what exactly were the degrees you mentioned at the college that you went to? Yeah. I, so I have a BA in English from Auburn University, like a really basic English degree. Hilariously, I I technically have a lit degree. And my focus when I was going through that degree is in sex and gender and Victorian literature, which is obviously something I use all the time writing (laughs) novels about witches. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so that was, I did that. And then I went, I never finished, but I went to get my master's in education uh, at Alabama A&M University. And I went like all the way through and then got caught very much in like, I don't know if you know this, but higher education has a lot of like bureaucracy and red tape. Mm. And when you combine that with like state education, because I was trying to be an English teacher, it got very complicated. So I never finished getting my master's in education, but I have like 40 something hours in it. I'm not better. <laughs> Dang, you are accomplished though. Like you still did it. You know what I, I mean? Yeah, exactly. Props exactly. to you. Okay, so I'm just genuinely personally curious about the sex and gender in Victorian literature. Is that something that you would explore in the near future or in an upcoming project? I definitely am. That's what's so funny about it is that I've always joked that like that was such a waste of my time or not. It wasn't because I had a good time and I kind of like <laughs> that's what really counts in college, right? But I am writing right now, or I'm actually in the process of editing it, um, a modern retelling of Jane Eyre. So called The Wife Upstairs, because we're going for it. That comes out next year. And so, yeah, it was weird like to like tap back into that whole gothic and gender and the way we talk about sexuality in Victorian yes. novels and to like take that and put it in 21st century Birmingham, Alabama um, was really fun. And so like it all kind of came back to me like, all right, no, I, I did a lot of like deep dives into these kind of dynamics. And now they're coming back in a really weird way. So when you were exploring these subjects, when was it when you were bitten by the bug of actually writing your own book? And did you always know this is something that was doable? I did a lot of writing throughout high school. I entered competitions and things like that. And sometimes I won and sometimes I didn't. And my parents took me to something called a young authors conference when I was like seven or eight, uh, which was like four kids who liked to write and they had some local authors there. So like I had a concept of it being a career, but you know, I'm 39 years old. So I was like coming of age in the eighties, early nineties. And so you didn't have kind of the access that kids I think have now with their favorite authors. Like anybody who likes my books now can follow me on Twitter or see what I'm doing on Pinterest or Instagram or whatever. And, you know, back then we just had no concept of authors almost as people. Where do they live? Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) There's just no telling. So I had no way of finding out what Judy Bloom was up to or whatever. I had an idea of wanting to do it. And again, I was writing constantly throughout high school, usually to entertain my friends. I read a ton of probably extremely problematic now 
historical romance in high school. That was what I was very, very into. So I was writing my own really bad historical romance, like to entertain friends during math class. You know, you'd pass your binder, like, here's the next chapter, guys. <laughs> I guess today kids are doing the same thing. They're just doing it on Wattpad. You know, it's a bit, but it's like that instinct has been there even before we had the technology to share it more wild, uh, widely. So yeah, I was writing all the time, but it really was not... And even in college, I wasn't necessarily thinking about being a writer. I just knew that I loved going to class and reading books and talking about books, that that fulfilled something in me. Like I was um, originally a criminology major. Part of it was that there's always that thing. If you're good at writing and reading, you're always like, well, I could always go to law school. That was always sort of in the back of your mind. Then I started taking a bunch of English electives in and amongst all of my criminology classes. And I was like, oh, no, this is what I want to do all day. Like, I want to read a book and go talk about it. (laughs) And especially like my roommate was an accounting major. So she was always doing boring things with math. And it just felt so fun to, (laughs) you know, sit back in your desk and talk Shakespeare for two hours. So that's basically I really I, I only took, I think, two creative writing classes when I was there. They were both great. I had a fabulous professor for both of them, but it it wasn't really in my brain as something I was going to do. And so, yeah, that was not late. That was not until later when I was teaching high school. You opened up a can of worms. Um, (laughs) You know, I'm going to start picking at you about criminology because I'm like, girl, you are just a genius. You are everything you touch. It turns to gold. You're so capable of everything. So where, where on earth criminology, where did that come from? What? Whoa. Okay. Yeah. No. I got into criminology. It's funny now because I look at all these like interests that I've had over the course of my life from criminology to like I'm a big, big history geek, too. And I realize now it all comes back to story. Like it's like, of course, that's what I was actually gravitating to and these other things. It wasn't so much that I had like a burning desire to work for the criminal justice system, but that there was something because criminology, you know, the end of the day, it's a study of crime, which is a study of people and people on the fringes in all sorts of different ways. And that was fascinating to me. And that's the same with history. It's like, I love stories about people. That's what I'm here for. Why do people work the way they do? How do these things happen? That kind of thing. So yeah, so that's why I got into criminology. And I think I have... I don't know, like 20 something hours in it. Like I didn't last that long in it. (laughs) I remember like going to my advisor's office and we were talking about like future careers. And he's like, most of my students end up being parole officers. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to do that. That sounds awful. No, thank you. It was the worst mistake of my life. You had to take a sex crimes class. Oh no. It's like law and order SVU every day in class. Oh no. Every day. So, and it was at four o'clock in the afternoon and it was in a classroom with no windows. And so I'm just like that semester sitting there in that windowless room, like hearing about just the most heinous things. I was like, oh my God. Yeah, I can't do this. When did you start writing for your own original stories that were your own manuscripts where you felt like, okay, I am taking this like a career, like a job. And it's kind of, it's sort of split into like two periods of my life. So the, the first was after college, like right after college, it's a little tricky sometimes to get a job with a just BA in English turns out. And so I was working at a preschool, which I actually really liked. I really liked working with little bitty kids 
Um, it's very fun. There are very few jobs where like, if the day just feels weird, you can be like, you know what, we're going to put on some music and dance. And everybody's like, yeah, I'm into that. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could try it at your office, but I don't like know how well it would go <laughs> for general people. But with little kids, they love it. I loved that job, but it obviously was not what I wanted to do forever. And I also had a lot of downtime during it because the kids napped. So during nap time, I started writing a very like Nora Robertsy romantic suspense adventure book. It, I mean, it's a mess. Like I found it recently or like pages of it. Like the prose is good. When I looked at it, I was like, okay, yeah, I knew what I was doing. But like the story is so all over the place because I was just throwing in like the entire kitchen sink. <laughs> I, it's like people treasure hunting in the jungles of Belize. It's, it's just bananas. Um, so I was doing that and I was kind of thinking you know, maybe this could be something. And, and I was always kind of trying to find, I was like the queen of starting books and not finishing them. Mm, aren't we all? Aren't we all? Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a huge part of, I feel like every writer's backstory. Yes. <laughs> but like, it's always, cause you're like, this one could be the one. And, mm. and it takes you a long time to realize that when you get bored halfway through, or you feel like another idea is better or smarter or more commercial or whatever. That's just how it always feels. You know, it doesn't say anything about that project that you're actually in the middle of. It's just that you're ready to move on by like a hundred pages. Most everybody is, is a little over it. And that's what like separates like aspiring writers from the published writers in the end, I think is like, well, we figured out that we had to push past that hundred pages and that it wasn't just all wrong. So yeah, so, so that was like a hundred page stall out, but that was probably the most I'd gotten up to that point. However, then life happened. So I had done that and I was teaching preschool for a couple of years. And then my husband was teaching high school science and they had a sudden opening for an English teacher, like literally the day before school started. And I had already enrolled in grad school to get my master's in secondary ed. So as a result, I was able to get a teaching job. And then that kind of ate my entire brain. <laughs> so like writing while teaching was really hard. Um, so I just kind of dropped it and I was like, okay, well now I'm just going to be the best teacher in the whole wide world. Like I really focused on that being my career. And then I had a baby. So <laughs> <laughs> that also then changed things a lot. My twenties were such a crazy time because like I graduated college when I was 22. I got married when I was 23. I went to grad school when I was 25. I had a baby when I was 25 and I eventually wrote my first book when I was 27. It's why I've spent my thirties doing like the bare minimum. <laughs> because. The 20s me was insane and went to grad school while having a newborn at home and taught full time. It was just, it, I can't, I don't know who that girl was. So boy, she got shit done. <laughs> wow. You're so good with the time just overall and how to be efficient and maximize every second of your day. That's gone out the window now. <laughs> that was 15 years ago, Rachel. She was really on top of it. So I was doing all that. And then grad school went epically kerplooey for me. And my job did too, because my job was tied into grad school. So I was teaching high school English, but I was on an emergency certificate, which is they let you teach because you have a degree in your subject matter and you're getting a master's in education. You can only have three emergency certificates in a row, and then you should have your master's. And so I was done with all of my master's work and I had done comps and I was getting ready to graduate. And then they found out that the state had changed the law where it used to be that if you had a teaching job while you were in grad school, they grandfathered you in on student teaching. 
and they had changed that. So they were like, well, you haven't done student teaching. <laughs> and I was like, but I've oh, been teaching sh- for three years. And they were like, okay, well, like quit your teaching job and go teach for free for six months. Oh and my then- God. It was, I mean, it was a complete disaster. That's and- ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. It's so a red tape and my school kind of worked with me then to keep me on an extra year. And it was super duper stressful. And then they were like, Oh, wait a minute. Your math score on the GRE was bad. So you need to take another math class. And just, I, I got caught up in all this stuff and it was super duper stressful because I'm trying to finish grad school and I'm also trying to hold on to my job. And also I have a baby and you know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And so it was during all of that my husband had quit teaching. We were teaching at the same school and he had quit teaching because he was just over it. I just decided I would quit too, sort of in the middle of the year, because also I just realized that the grad school stuff was, it was too stressful. Like on top of teaching, I was like, let me quit this job and and try to figure out what I'm going to do. But during that time, I thought, well, now I'm going to write a book because now I have all this time off because I just quit my job. And my husband had gone back getting another job, but he'd also cashed out his state retirement to kind of fund us for a little bit. So there's another like very supportive person in my life. So he was like, you've got this time, take this like semester basically to figure out what you're going to do and, and go ahead and write the book that you've wanted to write. I love him. Oh my gosh. I, this is so sweet and so inspiring for all like hashtag couple goals. You know, this (laughs) is, that's really amazing. Sorry. I didn't mean to jump in, but I love hearing supportive couples for each other. I think it's really crucial. It it really is. And and he's always been, it's so funny because he's always been like, if you would just write a book, that would be it. You could do that. Like he wow. was very, very. He believed uh, in you from day yeah, one. He really believed in me. He was really firm in that belief. And, wow. you know, so that was extremely helpful because, yeah, you sometimes, ugh, sometimes I do signings and stuff and I get like a lady asking me, how do you get your husband to take what you do seriously? And I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> gosh. Oh, gosh. I, mm-hmm. I suggest you upgrade. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like, should take it seriously because he's your life partner. Yes. Um, but anyway, so during that time, so this was October of 2007. So during that time I did, I wrote Hex Hall, which turned out to be my first book. I always joke now that book is also like, even though there's like demons getting their heads cut off and what have you, it's a really light book because I was like drowning personally. So like that book was kind of my lifeboat. I was like, I'm just putting everything I love into this book, like everything there's witches, there's family secrets, there's boarding school, there's snark, there's this weird, like super complex backstory. There are secret societies. I mean, it was everything. I wrote that from October of 2007 to February, 2008. I'd been very serious during the entire time I was writing it that once it was done, like I was finding an agent, I was getting it published. You know, I had done my homework up to that point because it was, I like, I, I didn't have much of a safety net at that point. So I was taking it very seriously. Do you mind if I jump in here and there just because I'm like a little, I kind of imagine like a meerkat. I'm like, boom. Okay. Like I got to ask you this. Boom. That's great. That's great. Right. So meerkat side is coming out. Yeah. So it's like February, 2007 to 2008, there was no safety net and you had to do, this was it, like a make it or break it situation. So you did your homework to find an agent. But from what I remember having conversations with different authors is that it's only really recently where finding information 
about agents and reaching out to them has been a lot more accessible in the last several years. Oh, yeah. So 2007, 2008, I'm sure there was barely anything on the internet. So how did you go about doing your homework then? There was some on the internet. It's so funny because like, I mean, I was like querying agents at a time when you like, there were some agents who didn't take email still, you know, wow. you sent like yeah, an so actual mail, like, right? Yeah. Like actual letter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, there were some blogs though, like blogs were kind of starting to pop up then. And so I was reading actually a lot of author blogs and Authors love talking about how they got their agents for the most part. Like I talk about it a lot too. So like I was able to find a couple of examples of that and including um, there's an author named Caitlin Kittridge who has written YA and she's written um, a lot of like adult uh, sort of supernatural paranormal stuff. And she had an example of her query letter on her blog. Um, And that was super duper helpful. So I was just sort of able to kind of piece it together. So it was like between author blogs, the occasional agent website would have some information because also that was a time, um, 2007, 2008, YA was really exploding in an interesting way. Um, like I've always said, you know, Harry Potter like opened the door and then Twilight really kicked it open. So it's like, no matter how you feel about like the Twilight books, like we would not be here in terms of YA without them. Um, And that's actually what got me reading YA was because I was teaching high school and I didn't read YA. And so I was asking my kids, what are you guys into? And so that I could kind of keep a good classroom library and, and all of that good stuff. And then when I started reading YA, I'm like, oh my God, this is the most fun in the whole wide world. I didn't know they could do this. (laughs) So they're doing everything. So yes, there was a lot more um, openness starting to happen around YA because it was suddenly such a gold rush time. And so more and more agents, you had like younger agents too, like people who were just recently coming into the business, but who were selling these big books. And so we're maybe a little more open than the previous guard had been. And so, yeah, there was a little more information out there. So it was like between like piecing stuff together there and literally going to my local Barnes and Noble and getting the writer's marketplace, you know, from the language arts section of the bookstore and sitting down and writing things out of it and then putting the book back on the shelf because I was broke. <laughs> like oh, I was smart, I smart. Wasn't spending twenty dollars on writer's marketplace. It was a lot of that, and also like looking at the back of the acknowledgments and the books that I was reading. Okay, who are your agents? And then looking them up in writer's marketplace. What else do they represent? So. Yeah, yeah, it was it was kind of a little bit piecemeal, but I was able to sort of build a pretty good base of knowledge of how to go about getting an agent. I feel like you are the perfect person to ask, especially hearing how much effort you put in your querying process and that whole journey. Do you have any advice just from that time that you can share with our listeners who are going through a really tough time right now with querying? It is. It's really hard. And so much of like being a writer requires this bizarre mix of being extremely vulnerable and open and also being extremely arrogant and confident. <laughs> like those things are always in competition with each other because you are, you're like, here's this thing I made with my brain. Please like it. And when people don't like it, you have to be able to like brush yourself off and be like, that's fine. That's just not for them then. Yep. But and then on to the next. Yeah. On to the next. And that on to the next mentality is it really served me well. Again, I always kind of feel a little funny talking about like, I mean, I'm happy to talk about my querying experience, but again, I was querying such a different time. Like, I don't think that people can fully. So like, I always feel bad because I I did, I got my agent very quickly, but a lot of people were getting agents very quickly in 2008, you know? So it's a completely, so I never want to be like, oh yeah, no, it's super easy. It's like, 
publishing goes through such different times. And so, but the biggest thing for me and the thing that I would always tell anybody is to keep a lot of irons in the fire. So for example, I always wanted to have 10 query letters out. And so if I got a rejection from somebody, then another one went out, you know, so that it was always kind of, so that in that way too, I could look at the rejections, not so much as like, Oh, they didn't like it, but like, okay, cool. Now another door has opened up. Okay, great. I'm taking another chance now that this chance didn't pan out, but maybe this one will. And so that to me is the biggest thing. And it is, it it can be extremely demoralizing (laughs) and I don't want to sound like a Debbie Downer when I'm like, yes, but being demoralized is part of being an author. But that's, that is, that is fact though. That is part, I mean, it's just pure, it's life period. You know, it's like even trying to enter a relationship, you may not, you know, you may not get the answer you want. You may get rejected by someone that you like or some, it's just life overall, but just, you know, the little nuggets of, of advice here and there, like what you shared is, you know, having 10 of them like ready to go at any instance right. like if you you hear no boom it that another helps. one goes out yeah, and exactly. that, that makes you feel better because you don't have time to wallow in that rejection and there's something about the control the control yeah, exactly. that you have i think it's just the rejection it hurts because it also comes with a lack of control like you're yeah. unable to control the outcome and i think a lot of people freak out because of that and i get it because you know i have to face tons of rejections all the time, but it's just growing a thick skin and having that mentality. Okay. On to the next. It's just part of it. And knowing that actually does make you so much more confident. If you feel like there are more things you can do to better your chances. Right. Yeah. I think anytime like you're being like proactive, you feel better because it does, you you don't have the time to wallow and, and it does, it makes you feel more in control of things. I actually got my first rejection, I think 10 minutes after I sent it out. (laughs) Like, Like, so I was like, Oh, okay. And like, that was actually really helpful because it was, you could just sort of go, all right. So like, that's what it feels like. That's what it's going to be like. Can you handle that or not? The more that you can send out and every time that a rejection comes in to see it as like it's a chance to find the right person, because that's the thing, you know, coming to look for an agent, you want somebody, I've been with my agent now for over 10 years. Um, she is 100% like captain of my team, basically. And I'm so glad that I found her. So you want that person, you want the best business fit for you too. So Okay, meerkats coming out. Yes. So, <laughs> so this is the same exact agent that you had since you first had representation. You did. You never switched agents. I never switched. No, she wow. will have to cry me off like a barnacle. But she's the best. She's oh the my gosh, this is incredible. Okay, then yeah. I need to ask you because we also have those next phase writers who have representation. Those who have had for mm-hmm. a long time. I guess the best way to put it is, you know, I hear a lot where you know sometimes needing to know when it is time to move on to a different agent and when you know it is the right agent through the multiple different projects that you have coming out and how to maintain that healthy relationship. So you're clearly in that boat of great, fantastic relationship. Then how did you sustain that? How did you maintain it for over 10 years? Like what my background is in acting. So with mm-hmm. with agents, it's important to show your team the love and appreciation for the work that they've done for you. You know, even if it's a year that's not great and you didn't book that much, it's still like letting them know, hey, 
I know you're in my corner. Thank you. If, if it's a right. healthy relationship, if it's healthy, if right. it's not toxic. Right. So right, then exactly. for us, like I know out of habit, I want to send something as a token of appreciation, like a thank you, like even things like that are that technical or that like tangible. Do you meet up for meetings um, once a year or have dinners just to like go over your plan for the future? Like, can you like give us a peek behind that curtain? <laughs> yeah. So it's so funny because so my agent is Holly Root with Root Literary. Oh, yeah, oh my God. We had Holly. I don't know if you know, but we had Holly on the podcast. She's freaking oh, awesome right, yeah. and so boss. Now, right. You know now why I'm like, yes, oh, I've okay, never yes. <laughs> yeah. Like, I understand, girl. You don't got to go further. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> you understand. No, that's right. That's right. I listened to her episode. Yeah, and that was another thing. I emailed her when I listened to her podcast. Oh, I was that's like, hey, so sweet. Your, your podcast was amazing. You sounded oh. so smart and great. I'm so happy you're my agent. So yeah, like that kind of thing. Oh, definitely. Okay. So you want to reciprocate that support. Yeah, yes. exactly. So Holly and I, it's such a kind of funny thing because so when I was querying agents, I got a reply from one that was really nice. And he was like, this is a good book and I really like it. And I think that somebody's going to snap it up. It's just not for me. He's like, so I went ahead and passed your name on to this other agent and you can contact her and tell her that I sent you, which is huge. Like that's such a nice thing for an agent to do. Um, and so I did that and I contacted that agent and said, so-and-so sent me, you know, and, um, also like never, ever do that if so-and-so did not send you because they will find out. Yes. <laughs> I hear that happening a lot and I'm like, Oh no, no, yeah, don't do that ever. Yeah. Listeners yeah. don't ever don't do, that. do that. That is shady that. AF. Okay. And Please will, do not do yeah. that. Terrible reputation. Absolutely yes. Absolutely get caught doing it. Yes. And you'll burn so, all bridges. Please do all not. Bridges. Yeah. Yes. Don't do it. So yeah, so I had a genuine reference. And so, and so I went to that second person and then she said, you know, I really like this, but it's not quite for me, but I sent it to someone I used to work with Holly Root and she's just started over at this new agency and she really liked it and would like you to get in touch with her. And so I did. And like that it's the best sort of like game of telephone or like being passed around like a hot potato that could have ever happened to me. And so, yeah, Holly literally read the full manuscript in like a couple of days. And as soon as she got back to me and we were talking on the phone, I just, you know, I, I was really impressed with her. And it's so funny because like, you know, we joke now, like she was such a baby agent at the time too, which is another kind of thing. I think sometimes people, when they're querying, like they immediately want to land like the biggest get. Yes, yes. Um, mm -hmm. And the thing is, is that like 10 years ago, Holly was a, you know, young agent who just started at this prestigious agency. And now Holly is a big get on her own, running her own show, you know? There's nothing wrong with a baby agent at a really reputable agency. And may I jump in and also add that, again, this is from my experience from an um, acting background. Those yeah. baby agents, they are the most hungry. They will oh my work. Gosh usually harder than the bosses because the bosses exactly. have done years and years of work and they're so exhausted, tired, jaded, whatever yeah. it is. And the passion is not, I'm, uh, this is not true for all senior no, agents, but, yeah, but sure. usually it's, it's pretty common. You'll hear a story where senior agents, it's really the junior agents doing most of the legwork and really blood, sweat and tears. It's like from the junior agent. So I'm always rooting for the junior agents for sure. So that's my own two cents. I want to jump in yeah. and share with yours. It's so true though. It's so true. Yeah. Like, yeah, they will work so hard for yes. you. And then if you're very lucky, like I have been, you build this really amazing relationship from when you were both kind of green and starting out, um, to where you're both more established. And I like, uh, you know, that's so neat to me. I still really, I love that feeling with Holly that we kind of came up in this together in a lot of ways. 
now like yeah she's absolutely amazing and she is completely killing it with her agency so yeah like as to how we like maintain that yeah a lot of it is just appreciation and like yeah if she has to do something that sort of goes the extra mile for me i try to send flowers or succulents or something or you know and we definitely try to meet up uh, about once a year at least um you know she's out in la now and uh, i love la so it's very happy to go <laughs> great out excuse there. to get out there and say like <laughs> exactly. hey girl how are you missed exactly. you wanted to give you a hug <laughs> yeah gonna write it off on my taxes right uh, <laughs> and hang out here <laughs> yes people need to remember this is a human to human business and you need to show the love like they take care of you. You got to take care of them too. take care of your own people. And that's the thing. You see a lot of that, that kind of like, don't forget your agent works for you. And it's like, well, um, yes and no. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like you shouldn't be afraid to talk to your agent. Like I always, I hate when people are like, oh, I'm afraid I'll bother her if I email her about something about their agent. Um, Because like, you're not going to bother, like, you know, send the email, but be respectful and and nice. Um, So yeah, but, but at the same time, exactly. It's like, remember that they're a human being and, and try to, and that's just good advice for any kind of business really is to, there are so many times when I've gotten an email or something from someone who was like, yeah, so you were so nice about this. And I'm like, well, I just basically treated you with human decency. (laughs) I didn't even think I was being super nice. I thought I was just being like the baseline of normal. And I'm really concerned about what, like how other people may have treated you. You start questioning humankind. You're just like, wait, what is happening? Right. And especially like I always say too, like publishing is such a small business and that like assistant that you yelled at five years ago is now an associate editor somewhere. So like, you know, remember that, like just because somebody's like on the bottom of the ladder doesn't mean that you can treat them poorly. But again, that's, that's just life advice. Because also too, like everybody, especially in publishing, I would say like everybody's invested in making your book the best book it can be. Yeah, that's that's what we're all like coming towards at the end of the day. That's what we all want. We're all on the same team on that. And so, yeah, respect that. Agreed. Oh, I love this. Thank you so much for this. Now, Her Royal Highness, can yes. you give us your own blurb about what it's about and what listeners who may not have picked up a copy of the book yet, what they can expect from this book? Yes. So Her Royal Highness is a companion novel to a book called Prince Charming. It's Prince Charming in paperback. It was Royals in hardback. We switched it up for the paperback. Um, And it is basically the tropiest, fluffiest rom-com about a girl who goes to boarding school in the Highlands of Scotland, finds out her roommate is the actual princess of Scotland, and they have a sort of enemies to lovers thing. So it's a very, it's your like standard, oops, I fell in love with the royal except they're both girls so that's kind of my um it's yeah the prince and me but with ladies okay awesome (laughs) and then so from me this is very personal for me because i am with a woman in a relationship Mm -hmm. so i would love to know where this female female specifically female female relationship came from what inspired you it was a lot of things it sort of started in a weird way with fandom things because in fandom, I I don't go like hardcore into any fandom really, but I, I love fanfic. I love the concept of it. And 
I was always like so shocked at how little femme slash there is basically, you know, like any like two cute straight boys who have ever looked at each other in a movie, of like 700 fix where they make out. Um, but you can have like canon lesbians and it's like they're friends. Here's another fic of them, like just being gal pals or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I had a friend who's a lesbian who was very frustrated with that. And who's always been doing her sort of part. And then writing with her and writing with another friend of mine who was bisexual, um, we were writing a lot of femme slash type fic just because we were like trying to kind of restore some balance, I think. And then it really came to me that I was like, I would really like to write very, very, like I said, sort of tropey rom-coms, but with girls, because I thought the way that I sort of pitched this book, which was easy because my editor's a lesbian too. So it was a very easy book to pitch to her that I was like, I just feel like girls who like girls should get their own extremely fluffy tropey rom-coms. Cause I didn't want to do necessarily like a, a heavy coming out story, although I think those are extremely important, but that wasn't what I felt also very qualified to do, but I felt like I could do this. So that was a lot of it. It was basically just, and of course those books already exist. Like there's, there's nothing new under the sun. There was a fabulous uh, rom-com about lesbians for adults last summer called when Katie met Cassidy that I absolutely loved. So yeah, it's like not like the first torchbearer here, you know, but yeah, I just, that was a lot of it. It was just wanting to see more of those stories in the world. Okay. So how are you able to do the research to make sure that it came off very genuine and realistic to readers like me? So I definitely had, you know, targeted reads as it were. Um, Mm -hmm. So people who I had lesbians read it. Like I said, my editor is a lesbian. I have my own kind of, I'm, I'm not very big into labels for me personally, but I certainly had my own experiences that I felt, um, allowed me to step into Millie's shoes because Millie is on the page. I really wanted her to explicitly say bisexual. I didn't want to do kind of like confused or experimenting. I wanted to use that word. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there, there was a lot of that. So yeah, it was between like having targeted readers and also my own experiences I felt like it would read truthful. How do you think readers have reacted to your book? So far, everybody really has, like, the responses have been really touching and lovely. Um, It definitely seemed like there were a lot of girls who were like, yes, this was what I wanted. I Uh wanted something, like, really light, really fluffy. Um, It's kind of, to me, been actually the book that... Just from what I've seen, I mean, I honestly like don't go out looking for the bad stuff, <laughs> but like people, uh, if people talk to me about this one, it's all good so far, you know, and yes. which is really nice. Um, and there was already like a million like people sending me little mood boards they made for it and stuff like that, which I really, really loved. So, yeah, I think the response has been really good so far, which is is lovely to hear. Well, congratulations. Thank I am. You. I have to ask if just because I'm seeing so much happening right now on television and, for example, like Ruby Rose being cast as, yeah, yeah. as Batwoman. Do you have actors, actresses that you have in mind for the main characters in Her Royal Highness? Just just for fun. I'm just like so curious. <laughs> yeah. See, I'm so bad about like fan casting my own books because I'm so old. <laughs> like all the actors I like are like 35. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. You know Nothing what I mean? Wrong with that. 
Um, it's so funny though, because so if you look at the cover for Her Royal Highness, when yeah. they asked me about Millie and what she kind of looked like, I sent them pictures of Jenna Coleman from Doctor Who um, when she was in Doctor Who. Now she's on Victoria, but I was specifically thinking like Doctor Who era Jenna Coleman, and specifically the dimples and like the slightly. Um, She's quite thin now, but she had like a very kind of curvy figure in Doctor Who and like that sort of, you know, that kind of look. And if you look at the cover, like Millie looks a lot like Jenna Coleman from Doctor Who. I see. I literally had a Google right now because I wasn't sure who she was. And I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, she does. The dimples are really. And then for Flora, um, I'm like completely obsessed with Jodie Comer and Killing Eve right now. Um, oh, wait, she's the one opposite Sandra Oh, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I was like, she could be a snotty princess really easily. So. Oh, my gosh. How fun. Oh, my gosh. I just Googled both girls and I'm yeah. like, oh, my God, they look so fun. They would look like they would have great on-screen chemistry, too. They would. They would. Somebody hire me to write that. Even if you yes. don't want to do my book, like, I'll write another book <laughs> for them. <laughs> Scotland. Now, what what is this yes. love for Scotland? This you gravitate towards Scotland deeply, and why is that? Do you have relatives from Scotland? Do you, or you've just traveled there before and you just fell in love with it? Yeah, it was basically that. It's basically the traveling there. Um, I'm actually going back in July, and I think it's going to be my sixth or seventh time, something like that. It's it's so ridiculous. Like we've really got to broaden our horizons and go elsewhere. But yeah, no, I don't know. It's the weirdest thing. Like my whole family, all three of us, we all really, really love it there. And no, there's no like genetic connection. Like we we don't have relatives there. I mean, we may have like ancestors way way back who were from there, but we haven't checked that out um and it's just there's something about it i don't know i think that there are places every once in a while you know you'll travel somewhere and you just feel homey there for whatever reason for it speaks to something within you so and scotland is that for us i've written three books now set there um and yeah and my husband is a geologist so he loves Scotland for like the rocks. <laughs> we all have our own kind of thing that appeals to us about it there. But I think also we're all like very fair skinned. My husband's a redhead. So I'm like, maybe it's just that we can like go outside. <laughs> so maybe that's it. Like we don't have to slather on like SPF 1000 <laughs> just to walk outside. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, yeah. I don't know if you believe in past lives, but I do. And I'm like yeah, wondering, totally. yeah. right? I'm like, I wonder if you had another dimension, another life where you were in Scotland or something like a Scotland for you to be I called just, to the country. We must have. Yeah, both of us, or all three of us, really. Because, yeah, we're all just, like I said, we feel like so at home. Yeah, there. yeah, exactly. As soon as you sit at home, I'm just like, yeah. ooh, past life, maybe. Yeah, it's, it's got to be. And, like, the last time that I left is, like, the plane was, like, taxiing down the runway and I was, like, watching Scotland recede on the ground. Like, I started crying. Like, oh, I just had, wow. like, even though I was going home, you know, and like it, it was the weirdest thing. How are you able to capture the location so vividly? How is that like for you? I know we have Google Maps now. I hear a lot of people yeah. use Google Maps, <laughs> but it's like, ah, oh, man, I wish there was no Google Maps. So you have more of a reason for a tax write off to go, exactly. go to Scotland again and again. How do you do that when you're writing and to remember so vividly all the details? Any advice for anyone writing stories set in somewhere outside of their city? 
in my case, like, I think a lot of it is just sort of repetition because we have been there so often, you know, like you eventually, and we have like our favorite haunts and that kind of thing. So eventually you absorb a lot of it. I definitely try to kind of take mental pictures. I mean, I take actual pictures too, but that's mostly for my Instagram. <laughs> just to, just to show off where I'm going to be that jerk. So it's not like a very structured process for me. Like it is just kind of, I like, I'm very into this, like, just kind of be there and take it in. And cause I don't always know exactly what I'm going to need either. Um, and sometimes like in her Royal Highness, for example, I have a whole section where they go to sky and I didn't, you know, go to sky so that I could put that in the book. I put that in the book because I'd been to sky and really loved it. And so I wanted to find a way to incorporate it. Um, so that's a lot of it too. I think I sort of let the location influence the book rather than the book influence like the location where I want to go or things like that. Um, but I also think too, like for me, traveling is really inspiring. I love it. Um, I want to go all the places, but I know that for a lot of people, it's, it's extremely stressful. It's not even sometimes a financial thing. It's like, no, I really just don't like planes. I don't want, you know, that kind of thing. And I always want to be like, that is absolutely fine because I think there's nothing more depressing than somebody sort of being like, Oh, this is so important to creativity. And you're like, Oh, but I don't like that thing. And I still want to be creative. And like, you absolutely can because yeah, I love, um, buying travel guides, like especially the really like expensive ones, like the discovery eyewitness travel guides with all the pictures, those things can be absolutely just as helpful as going to, if not more, because like they've got all the information you could ever want. And so I think there's all kinds of ways then that you can sort of research a place that you want to write about that, like maybe going there just isn't feasible. Um, and you can find like travel blogs, people, I mean, people love to talk about their trips. So you can find somebody who's just sort of like sharing their knowledge without you actually having to buy a plane ticket. That is such a good point. I never even thought of that. Yeah. Like I, so that's why when I was, like I said, you know, years and years and years ago, writing that bad Nora Roberts ripoff that was set in Belize. Like I didn't go to Belize, but I had a really nice Belizean travel guide. Um, that was really helpful. And I looked at a lot of pictures and things like that. So, uh, so yeah, there's all kinds of ways I think that you can research that sort of thing without necessarily feeling like you have to go there. If you do want to go there, then absolutely do. And absolutely write it off on your taxes and live your best life. Uh, but, but yeah, but if it's not for you, that's fine too. You can write a book, you know, set anywhere without getting on a plane. Okay. That is perfect. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. Overall, when you were, Going through your manuscript with your editor, were there any huge discrepancies that you had to come across and really hash it out? In this case, there really was not. This was like when we had done Prince Charming previously, and I've been working with the same editor now uh, on the vast majority of my YA books. And so I know how she edits and she knows how I write. So when we had done Prince Charming, we had done some ma- like big, big structural things in that with plot because I had just sort of a lot of... I don't know. Like there were so many ways the plot could go in that that I was just kind of throwing them all on the table. So we sort of had to stick to a plot um, and not just do five different ones that never really went anywhere. Um, But when it came to Her Royal Highness, the plot was pretty solid. So we didn't have nearly as much work to do. It was, but it was like a lot of fleshing out of the relationships. One of the specific things that we really wanted 
to work on is Millie's relationship with her friend Jude that sort of opens the book where Millie has this friendship that's maybe more, but maybe not. And Jude's been dating a boy, but now he's gone. And so she and Millie have kind of been like, there's kissing, but are they just friends? And so we really wanted to nail the kind of ambiguity of that. And I do think that it's a thing that a lot of girls go through, um, because female friendships, especially when you're young, can be so intense. And sometimes it's hard to suss out, like, what is this? Is this, do I just really like this person? Is it a crush? Because I think that, like, especially when you're a teenager and you find, you know, that that girlfriend who just gets you, like, and you just want to be around them all the time. It's like this huge rush of endorphins that's very similar to having a crush, if, if not basically the exact same thing. You know, and so we definitely wanted, so we worked a lot on that and also having that relationship have a little bit more of an arc. Whereas like, I think in the first draft, you know, it just all goes poorly and Millie runs away to Scotland and then never really thinks about her again. And we were like, okay, no, we've got to like kind of come back to that and touch on that a little bit more and have that come to a sort of softer ending. Um, so yeah, that was definitely one where we, between the two of us, like we had to work and find those places too. Cause like, it's not the major romance of the book. It doesn't have any like huge effect on the plot, save Millie leaving. Um, but finding little moments to kind of remind us of that, you know, that that's been going on. And that's also part of why Millie is a little gun shy about getting into a romance with Flora, because it's like, what if it, this is that all over mm-hmm, again? Mm-hmm. Yes. So yeah, that was a big one. Oh, I love that you shared that detail because um, this is something that I just reminded me to share with you. So my girlfriend read your book. Mm-hmm. She really enjoyed it and yeah. said that it reminded her a lot of when she was in her college days, when she's had crushes on people and couldn't tell and differentiate between crush or friendship. Right. And, you know, and it's just such a, um, a real honest topic that you really took the time and energy, you and your editor and the effort to really flesh out and to look at that. I mean, even me, I was just having this conversation with, I love that you just expanded on that. So thank you. And thank you and your editor for doing the work and to like touch on those details that a lot of people usually just kind of skip through and are just like, well, right. just brush yeah, it under like, the rug. You know what I mean? That's Yeah. That's kind of the heart of the book in a lot of ways. You know, that, that, that's such a crucial part of, again, of really wanting to get into too, like relationships between girls. And again, how that can be just, I was joking on Twitter last weekend, I was in my hometown and I found my journal from like 10th grade, the one that I had to do for class. And I had an entry, like multiple entries about my best friend at the time. And they were all like, just how much I liked her and all the things we were doing together. But then it was also like, and here's what she wore the other day. Like, and she looks so pretty. And also I hate her boyfriend. And I was like, oh my God, like I I never would have thought about it back then. It's like, oh, but reading back over it, I'm like, okay, I see what was happening a little bit there. So yeah. What is something that's really exciting you in your work right now? Right now, like the wife upstairs is kind of taking over my whole brain because like I just sort of am wrapping up like her Royal Highness promo time. And now I'm like, oh, right. Now the the next thing is this, which is always exciting and terrifying. So yeah, I'm really excited about that just because I think it's, it's been such a fun book to work on and it's such a different lane for me. 
I mean, it's, it's very, it's a similar lane in a lot of ways. Cause it's like, yes, more books about like women and, and the relationships between women. Like one of the fun things about this has been that, you know, the sort of Mr. Rochester character is not as important in this one because I really wanted to explore Jane Eyre and Bertha Mason as foils for one another and all of that kind of stuff. So it really allowed me to do a lot with women and also with Alabama, where I'm from, where I still live. So that's all been very exciting. Just it, it, like, let me use a whole new part of my brain. So yeah, that's kind of, that's the big thing right now still. Ooh, I'm so excited for you. <laughs> Thank this is you. very, very exciting. And especially your first foray into the adult fiction world. Are you a little nervous? Are you like, yeah. oh my gosh, I'm so ready for this. Like, how are you feeling about that? It's, it's a little bit of both. Like it feels like such a, cause I've been doing YA for 10 years now and I love YA, but I also had definitely reached a point where I was like, I kind of need like a creative break. I want to do some new stuff now. Um, and so this came along at such a perfect time to do this particular book. So yeah, so I'm, I'm excited and nervous. It's a whole new crowd of people too. Like if you yes. ask me like in YA, like, oh, who could you get to blurb this book? You know, I would have 20 names. Yes. But like with this, you're like, oh, I don't really know that many <laughs> adults. Oh, this is exciting. So yeah. Um, oh, that's exciting. All these new challenges. Yeah, Are you exactly. going to be publishing under your same name? Because I noticed. As far as I know, yes. Like that's my, awesome. I yeah, love that. My plan is to continue to do it there because to me like you know it's all kind of still part of the same brand in a weird way i'm thinking that that's what we're going to do of course if like they have different ideas on that then i'm fine with that but for now that's the plan brilliant okay now what's the best advice you've ever received and it could be for your writing or your career or just how to manage being a human being that you can pass <laughs> on to our listeners um, I've gotten a lot of really good advice. I always joke that the best advice ever, and I will never, ever take it, but it was such good advice. Was my, <laughs> my dad used to always say, just sit back until you know who the assholes are. Oh my God. Which is like really solid, but I'm, I'm a golden retriever person. So I'm always just like leaping into things without, I've never sat back in my entire life, but thanks dad. And of course his addendum was always like, and if you can't tell who the asshole is, it might be you. <gasps> oh, so, wow. Like, oh. That but is now, some sage advice. Actually. I'm like, your dad is genius. He is. He really was. And, um, <laughs> but uh, like I said, I can't take that because I don't know how to sit back. I just, I, it's, I don't have a poker face. Like <laughs> I, <laughs> I always joke, like, if you're into astrology, which I am, like, I am, like, peak Sagittarius behavior all the time. It's oh always, God. like, cranked up to 11. <laughs> I love that description. That was so perfect. Yeah, so it's like, there's no sitting back. I'm sorry. That's for water signs. I can't do that. What are some small manageable steps that you can share with our listeners, our writers, that they can take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals? The biggest one for me, and this has genuinely been a game changer, is little bites, basically. I cannot sit for hours and hours at a time in front of my computer. Like my attention span will not allow for it. So I do 20 minute bursts, and you can get so much more done in 20 minutes than you're thinking you can get done. And that's how I write every single day. I do, I write for 20 minutes, I take a 10 minute break write for 20 minutes, 10 minute break. And I sort of do um, like chunks of like three 20 minutes. So an hour or an hour and a half with the breaks. And I can get, you know, 2000 words written. Whereas if you told me I had to write 2000 words in an hour, 
I would be like, that's crazy. I can't do that. So that's the biggest thing is that is to really break it up into small chunks. And that for me, time has been a much more manageable way to do that than word count. I used to be very like, you've got to write 1000 words a day or 1500 words a day or one chapter a day or whatever. Now doing it in the time, you can also sort of break down that way. Like how long does it actually take me to write a book? Because writing a book feels even now, like I'm working on my 12th book, it feels enormous and daunting every single time. (laughs) You know, like it's a lot of words. It's a lot of pages. And when I was able to break down um, how long it took me to write The Wife Upstairs, it was like, 60 hours, I think. And so you look at it and you're like, it took me 60 hours of work. That's all it really is. That's if I wrote for just an hour a day for 60 days, I was like, it's two months. You know, it's just, I was like, it's mind blowing, like how little time it actually takes. Wow. Okay. That is so freaking helpful. I have to give credit to, there's an author named Tess Sharp and she goes over all this stuff on her Instagram. That's where I got it from her. Like that, cause she writes a bajillion books all at the same time. So she had to come up with this really intense organizational system and also to really manage her time. So yeah, so Tess Sharp, Sharp with an E, she's on Instagram, she's on Twitter and she has saved my writing life. <laughs> Jeez, that is so helpful because I was yeah. running an accountability challenge for some of our listeners for 31 days straight this past March. And Mm -hmm. what I was telling them to do was to put down a measurable goal. The twist that you popped in with was the hours being the measurable goal. For mine, I was making the measurable goal as how many words your project is, break it down to how many you need to get done and accomplish within each week or each day. And then I would go through with the time, time aspect of it saying like, listen, if you don't have one hour, squeeze in five minutes throughout the day, you're at work, go use the bathroom and like sit there for five minutes (laughs) and pretend you're taking a poop and just write it on your notes and then send it over to yourself when you get back home. Right. Like squeezing in those, like stealing the little bits of time because it does add up to like over an hour throughout the day. But this is mind blowing because for me, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I didn't think of it as the time itself being the actual end goal rather than the the word count. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, this it, is a really yeah. fascinating way. And thank you the, for sharing that. The time that. has been huge. Yeah. Because again, you'll get so much more done than you think you're capable of getting done. So that's the thing is that when I was doing this, I was routinely getting like, you know, six or 7,000 words a day in three hours. Whereas I could never have sat down and said like my goal today is 7,000 words. Yeah. Because um, that's just bananas. But so yeah, I was like, that's the thing. You will get so much more done with time. Or I have, you know, again, like not everything works for everybody. If this doesn't work for you, throw it in the trash. It's totally fine. It's been a game changer. Oh my gosh, that was brilliant. Thank you so much. And I know listeners are going to really, really take so much from that. I really, really appreciate that. Last final question is, if there are any books that have helped you with your craft, um, and I find it really fascinating that you mentioned you only took two creative writing classes, right? In school, like all the way back at the top when we're chatting. And for you to now be working on your 12th book, like this is insane, like insanity. Like are there, (laughs) if there's any craft books that you were really inspired by, or even like, I don't know, online courses or just overall books that have shaped your writing overall that you could pass on to our community to learn for themselves as writers? I absolutely love craft books. I like to pick up a new one every once in a while, just because 
uh, I don't know. I always find it really inspiring. Whenever yeah. I feel like kind of eh about writing, reading a new craft book, I'm always like, oh yeah, I can't wait to do that. That sounds like so much fun. The big ones for me, I mean, I think everybody probably says On Writing by Stephen King, but I really love On Writing by Stephen King. But it's really good. I read it in college and I have, I reread it every couple of years. And I just, I like that it's such a nice mix of like actual sort of nitty gritty grammar toolbox type stuff, but also how story works. I also really love Rachel Aaron. It's Aaron, A-A-R-O-N. She has a book called From 2K to 10K. And it's, she went from writing 2,000 words a day to 10,000 words a day, which sounds, I know. That's insane. What? I've, I've never been able to hit 10K a day, but it's such a fascinating book. And she breaks things down so interestingly. Like, and she also really started using time uh, as a way to kind of keep track of how much she was writing and, and really started documenting her output, her surroundings. Like I get more written at the coffee shop than I do in my home office or whatever. And I love all that. Like I I really, um, keeping a notebook for each book where I write down, like what my day's progress looks like has also been very helpful for me. And I first kind of came across that in that book. So yeah, definitely check that out. It's very inspiring too. If you feel like I got it at a time where I was missing a deadline and I was super behind and just felt like I was drowning. (laughs) And so this person kind of being like, look, you can write 10,000 words a day was like a life ring, even if I've never managed to write 10,000 words a day. And what's an, oh, and I always get it wrong. It's the war of art by Stephen Pressfield. So not the art of war, but the war of art. Yeah, which I absolutely love. And I'll, again, found it a time where I was really struggling and it felt very inspiring. Thank you so much for these recommendations. Absolutely. Let everyone know where to find you on social media. Right now, I am mostly over on Twitter at Lady Hawkins. It's all together like that, Lady Hawkins. I'm also on Instagram as Lady Hawkins. Rachel, this was so lovely. This was really fun. Thank you so much for having me. And that wraps up our episode with Rachel Hawkins. Rachel, thank you so much for sharing your story and giving our listeners incredible crafting and industry advice. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in. As always, please be sure to drop by and say hi to Rachel over on Twitter at Lady Hawkins and watch Rachel's Instagram story takeover on our Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea. If you would love to hear our full extended conversation where Rachel and I chatted for an hour and a half, you can access it as a patron by heading over to patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea. Don't forget over in her show notes page, you can download her writing prompt that she created just for you. And you can find that at 88 cups of tea.com slash podcast slash Rachel dash Hawkins. Have a super productive week and I will catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.